Okay, well, um, we're continuing here in our look here at 1 Corinthians, and uh, we're looking at Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. And we're currently here in chapter 3, and last week we looked at this passage from verses 18 to verse 23. I, I don't know if you have the Word of God in front of you or the Bible in front of you, but if you are, just kind of be able to follow along. Verses 18 to verse 23, as we said last week, it's actually, I think, divided into two sections, okay? Each section uh, begins with a word of exhortation. And last week, we saw that the first part, verse 18, begins with the exhortation, let no one deceive himself. But today, we're looking at the second part that begins with verse 21. And verse 21 begins like this. He says, let no one boast in men. Let no one boast in men. Now, let me just kind of recap um, what I tried to do last week. I actually had a couple of people kind of complain, saying that the sermon was really short last Sunday. And so um, the reason it was short is because uh, it was just too long. And so I had to cut it in half. But so we're, we're going to expand on this a little bit. But last week, um, I tried to make an argument that when Paul says in verse 18, if anyone among you thinks he is wise, let him become a fool that he may become wise. I argue that what Paul's trying to say here is not simply just kind of, you know, don't be stupid, but become smart, you know, for God. I think it's bigger. He talks about something in this age, uh, this world, uh, the way we think. And what I wanted to argue is that he's not asking for you to just kind of change a thought about a particular issue, but he's actually to make, asking us to make a change in how we view the world, uh, to make a change in our worldview. Okay, all of us have a world view, a view of the world of how we think works, whether it's morality, whether it's science, whether, whether it's art or beauty, we have a view of the world and at the core of our worldview are basic fundamental beliefs or truths that inform or drive the way that we tend to interpret things, see things, or believe the way things should be. Uh, the believe the way our society should be or our culture should be. Let me let me try to give you an example of what I'm trying to say. Um, <clears throat> you know, so I was in the University of Michigan for my first two years of college, and I had a, a roommate, a good friend of mine. Uh, he wasn't a Christian, but he was a good friend. And um, you know, when you're at that age and you're just a bunch of guys hanging out, uh, there weren't too many deep conversations that we actually had. Uh, most of our conversations were either about girls, or they were about video games or you know, they're about sports. But one day as we're all hanging out together, my roommate just randomly kind of brings up this thought that he had. And it was somewhat controversial and it was probably the only deep discussion that we had uh, at that time, freshman and sophomore year in college. And he said this, he says, he believed that if Adolf Hitler was alive today, right? If Adolf Hitler was alive today, that we should respect his decision to do what he did that we should respect his decision to do what he did. Now, immediately all of us were like, what, what, what are you saying, right? Why, you, why would you say such a thing? And he explained it and he said, basically he said to himself, he said this, that he couldn't call Hitler absolutely wrong, or at least that he had no rational justification to do so. And when we asked him why, he said the reason is because of this. In his worldview, or the way he sees the world works, there are no absolutes. That everything is pretty much relative. That everyone has a different culture. Uh, everyone lives in a different society. 
and to each his own. Each culture is relative to another culture and each society relative to another society. And what are culture and society? But people, everyone's people, and there is no God. That's his worldview. That's his worldview. And so his, at his core, at the center of his worldview is a view of relativity, subjectivism, is a view of tolerance that he tried to live consistently in all that he saw. And so he was thinking through these things and he says, Hitler was just doing what he thought he was doing. He was doing what he thought was best in his culture. And so we shouldn't really condemn him for that because after all, we're all just people and everything's relative and there are no absolutes. Now, of course, none of us in that room agreed with him. We all thought he was kind of crazy. I don't know how many people would say Adolf Hitler was, was right in any sense of the word, but certainly today, even if we do live in a pluralistic or relativistic kind of culture, certainly today, if you just turn on the television or look at your social media, people are absolutely frustrated. People are absolutely upset these days. We're upset at the pandemic for keeping us uh, in our social distancing mode, uh, not being able to enjoy life the way we used to. We're frustrated. Those of us with kids at home trying to manage our children and do schooling online with them, it's, we're upset. We feel like this is just wrong and how long can this go on uh, with the self-quarantining and all these kinds of things. We're, we're upset, we're angry at leadership today. Uh, the way uh, even our presidents handle things in the situation, in fact, not just handling it, but oftentimes making things worse. Uh, we feel like he's in ways absolutely wrong Right? And now we turn on today, you hear about people like Ahmaud Arbery, and now this George Floyd situation that's really just rocked the nation. And what seems like this never ending injustice and racism that, that's going on in our country. And the thing is, here's the thing we should be upset. We should be angry, especially at things like racism and injustice, not just anti Asian racism. Uh, not, but any racism, any racism, we should be angry at that. We should be upset at that kind of injustice, not just for ourselves, but for our children and our children's children. Uh, the fact that they'd have to grow up in a world like this, it should disturb us and it should cause us to, to, to worry and to, concern, to be concerned for what's going on right now. Um, we don't want to say that these things are just relatively wrong, right? We don't want to say these things are just culturally wrong or socially wrong. We want to say that these things are absolutely wrong. Absolutely wrong. We want to call these things evil. We want to call evil evil and we want to call what's good really good. But here's what we have to understand. <clears throat> if there's anyone who not only has the rational justification to be upset, but also should be the most frustrated, the most upset at things that are going wrong in the world, at the injustice, even of racism of any kind, it should be the Christian. It should be the Christian whose core values and principles, whose worldview is centered on the God of the Bible. It's the Christian who believes in a God of absolutes. The one who says things like, these are not just relatively wrong, but the God who says these are absolutely wrong for everyone. And so we're called to be people who are led by the word of God as the center of our life that says that the one who created all men created all of them in his image. And he commands us as he does in Isaiah chapter one, verse 17, learn to do good, seek justice, 
correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's case. And so if we're not thinking consistently from our faith through these things, then as Christians, if you're a Christian today, we are being inconsistent, maybe even hypocritical with what we say we believe and who we follow. And so what Paul is saying here in our passage is that as Christians, let's be more consistent with our our worldview and the faith and the beliefs that we hold uh, dear to our lives. So verse 18, if um, anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. And what he's really saying is this, it's not just about what you believe in God or what you believe about God, but it's how you're believing. It's how you're believing. It's how you believe these truths and how they affect you and what you see out there in your life, in your circumstances, in the world. Um, I think no one puts it better this way than C.S. Lewis in his famous book, The Weight of Glory, and he puts it this way. He says, quote, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Not only because I see it, but by it, I see everything else. And what Lewis is trying to say is, I think what Paul's trying to say, say is this, that when you believe in something about God or the truth, or when you commit to something in, in the Bible, it's the lens by which we see all things in the world. It's not something that we see about God, but through it, now we see everything in our life. That's what it means to have a consistent view of the world from a Christian base or perspective. And what we said last week was this, that if you realize that at least to some degree that we're all somewhat influenced by our culture or our upbringing or our social norms or the thinking of our current society, sometimes that's good, sometimes that's not so good. If you want to live or think more consistently like a Christian, if we want God's blessing, sometimes we need to check our worldview. Sometimes we need to check by what truths and what beliefs we're living out our, our, our faith. And oftentimes we need then to make a paradigm shift. That's what we said. Uh, we need to recalibrate our thinking from a personal worldview that, that might be more influenced just by opinion or culture or society to a view of the world that's more influenced by God and his word. To change our thinking, Paul's asking, to embrace what looks like foolishness to the world, but wisdom to God. To, as he says in verse 18, to become a fool, at least in the eyes of the world, the people of this age, and embrace the wisdom of God, which is bound up with this man named Jesus, the only savior for sinners, Jesus Christ, crucified and him risen for you. And so, as we come to the second part of this passage, I think Paul then broadly begins to show us how this kind of thinking ought to encourage us today. Now, here in our passage, in our context, Paul is specifically addressing a particular issue in the church of Corinth. There were divisions in this church that were motivated by pride. They were claiming loyalties to to certain leaders, basically saying, I follow this guy, and this guy is better than your guy, and therefore, I'm smarter than you, right? That's what he's saying. And so in response to that, Paul addresses this issue by basically giving us two really important truths two really important truths that make things like pride and boasting unnecessary. And as we look at these truths, these truths are fundamental of how we ought to view things, not just in ourselves, but also around the world. Two truths that he gives us, all of us, that no matter what we're struggling with, 
there's an encouragement by these truths to be faithful to a never-changing God in an ever-changing world. And here are these two truths I see in our passage. First, he says this, remember who you are. Remember whose you are, should I say. Uh, and the second is remember what we have. Remember what we have. Let me, let me do that the second first, okay? Remember what we have and then remember whose you are. And I think Paul is saying that if you could remember these two truths, right? If you could remember what you have in Jesus Christ, and if you could remember whose you are, then how you respond to difficult situations, how you deal with personal and relational conflicts, how you handle uh, spiritual or, or mental or emotional stress can make a real big difference. Uh, it could be different. And if you can remember these truths, Paul is saying, this is how you do the battle of faith in our lives. All right, so let's look at what he says more carefully here with these two things. The first thing he says is this. Uh, you, you hear our text or you listen to our text and Paul commands us in verse 21, he says, don't boast in men. And why not? And here's his answer. He says this, for all things are yours. All things are yours right? And then in verse 22, he says, whether Paul or Apollos or, or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. That's what he says. That's what he says in our passage. It's like this. It's as if he was saying this. Suppose that you were, you know, you were going to get married and you were, you know, looking for an engagement ring. And so let's say you have an uncle who has a jewelry store. And so you go to your uncle's store and you look for that ring right? And uh, as you find the ring that you want, now you begin haggling with your uncle. You know, you begin to kind of argue with him for the best price, uh, even, even fighting for the best price for that ring. All the while, forgetting to pause long enough to just hear your uncle say this. He says to you, nephew, don't you get it? You're going to inherit the whole store. Everything in the store is already yours right? And here in our passage, it's as if these people in this church, they were haggling, they were, they, were, they were conflicting over people like Paul or Apollos or Peter, when they had all three and the blessing of their ministry. And Paul is saying, then why are you haggling? Why are you fighting over one of Christ's servants when you have the blessing of all of them, when all of them have been given to you? And so that's what he tries to say. But I think as he answers the, or as he addresses this issue, Oftentimes what Paul does is he expands. His answers are bigger than what the issues really are. And if you notice in verse 23, he doesn't just say Paul and Apollos and Peter are given to you. But what does he say? He says there are five things that are given to us, all right, along with them. He says the world, life, death, the present, and even the future, all are yours. Those are big things, aren't they? big things. And he says, all are yours. And the irony of this world, life, death, present and future, even though he says all that they are all yours, I say, those are the things that stress me out. Those are the things that gives me grief or gives me sorrow or, or gives me just uh, anxiety and fear. Uh, commentator and scholar D.A. Carson says that this about this text. He says this, that these five things that Paul mentions in verse 23, they represent typically for us the fundamental tyrannies of life. 
the fundamental tyrannies of life. These are things that usually entangle us, that sometimes enslave us, that causes us things like stress, grief, fear, and, and anxiety. You know, for example, Paul says, the world is yours. How is it yours? When I think about the world, I think oftentimes the world puts pressure on us. The world tends to try and squeeze us into its mold. As you live out there in the world, we, we, we're comparing ourselves to one another. There's this level of competition. We, we, we feel like we oftentimes have to measure up to standards of the world, which are standards of beauty or standards of success, whether it's at work or in our relationships or even in our lifestyles, even churches and pastors. You know, what's interesting is that during this time of pandemic, uh, you know, church services for the first time, you're not just limited to just one service because you have to physically be there in the present. But now you could just tune into any church and see what they're doing online. But what's going on among certain pastors and many of us is that now we're looking at each other. We're comparing one another. We're competing with each other and how we are doing with our online worship and what we are doing. We're checking how many people are actually checking into our services. And it's kind of become an anxiety for certain people. And that's, I think, what's going on in many times. That's the world even the world that even pastors live in. Um, but Paul says the world is yours. He says life is yours. How is life yours? When oftentimes life seems very stressful, doesn't it? The stresses of marriage and relationships, the stresses of, of, of raising children uh, in, in, our, in our current situation, um, even physical life, just worrying about our health and and the health of loved ones, we cling so desperately to, to the physical life that we, that we have, as if the Bible never told us that, that our lives are like vapor that quickly vanishes. How is life yours? Mm -hmm. And then he says, death. Death is yours. De but death is a tyranny, isn't it? Death is a tyranny that no one escapes. And all of us, I think, we know this in our heads. We know it, right? We know that everyone will face death one day, but we still fear it no matter what. We know it, that this will happen even to the ones we love. We just don't know all the time when. But when it does, it doesn't matter how much we know, it's always a tragic surprise to us, isn't it? How is that ours? And then Paul says the present is also yours. But the present, we live under the tyranny of the urgent, right? We're always scurrying and urgently trying to achieve and do everything in the moment, before it's too late, because we just don't want to live with any regrets. And yet that's what drives us, right? And then last but not least, but he says, oh, the future is also yours. The future is also yours. But oftentimes we don't feel that way, do we? We often think about the future and it's the tyranny of the unknown, the uncertain. We begin asking questions like, what if? Like, what if this pandemic never ends? What if the economy never comes back? What if, what if the education for our children becomes totally changed? What are we going to do? What if financially we never recover? And it makes us, when we think about the future, it makes us anxious at every turn, right? Every turn. And so even though we may call ourselves Christian, it's so easy, isn't it? It's so easy oftentimes that when we think about things like the world, life, death, the present, uh, and the future, uh, that the way we think about them, the way we approach them, the way we try to manage them, it's, it's just so easy to just kind of forget about God, isn't it? To kind of just start believing in only what you can just see with your eyes, only what you can do with your hands, to kind of act and, and, and live and respond in a way that kind of says, it's just no one but me. 
that it's, it's all up to me, these things. It depends on me. And so we're busy trying to maintain or take control of these things, right? And, and when we fail or when things aren't really under our control, that's when we get very emotionally or mentally or physically wrecked. We become anxious and we become a fearful people. It's so easy as Christians who confess to be Christians, at least, to say that we believe in God, right? And then to act or live as if he really isn't there. Or worse, if he is there, it's irrelevant. It doesn't really matter. Sometimes, no matter what we confessed, no matter what we confess, at least functionally, many times we're living with a worldview that doesn't include God especially when we look at these things. But what does Paul say in in our verse, verse 22? What does Paul say in our passage? He says this, that the world, that life, that death, that present, and even the future, Paul says, are all yours. They're all yours. And I think what Paul's doing is this. He is offering an entirely different perspective, viewing his world more consistently from the truths and the beliefs that guides him according to the word of God. Now think about this, right? Like if you took his worldview, Paul's view of things, then the world, when you understand that everything you have that God has given to you and what he's doing for you, when you understand that suddenly, then the world becomes like, as John Calvin says, a theater for God's glory, right? You begin to rest in the promise that the meek shall inherit the earth. You think about life. Paul says, life is yours. Well, how is that possible? But if you believe that God has given to you all things when you trust in Christ and that everything you have in him, all the blessings, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, right? Then life stops becoming something that you are desperately and always trying to cling to with insecurity and fear. But it can also be a vehicle of joyful service as the Lord leads us and protects us in this life. Death. Death, it can be scary, but when you believe and you trust in what the Word of God tells you, then death is not the end, as scary as it might be, but it's a gateway to glory where where we may be absent from our bodies for a time, but nevertheless, we will be present with the Lord, which is far better, and united with all the loved ones who's come before. This is why Paul is able to even say, for me to live is Christ, but what? To die is gain. That's why he was able to say this. And when all of these truths that we learn or that we understand in our heads penetrate to the very core of our being, well, then even the present, even the present no longer urgently demands the survival of the fittest, but now it, which always drives us to perform, but now it offers us an opportunity now to live a life of love and service because we live secure in the present under the wise rule of a king that we believe who is working all things together for the good of those who love him. And the future, Paul says, is yours. And though we don't know the future and we can't see the future and it causes us worry and anxiety, even though we don't know the future, when you trust in what God has said, we know the one who knows the future. And he cares for us. That's what he says. And so we face the future confident that the one who holds the future also holds us safe in his hands. Do you see this? Do you see why Paul says all things are yours? Do you see how Paul, 
uh, compared to someone like me, can see the exact same circumstances, the world, life, death, present, and future, and then have completely different perspectives on those things. One perspective lives uh, out of fear. The other perspective lives out of faith, right? And those who live out of fear, fear is always asking the question, well, what if, right? What if I can't make it in this world? What, what if my life is threatened? What if, what if death is around the corner? What if my present I can't you know, control or do? What if the future turns out really bad for me? Uh, when we live out of fear, we're always asking what if. But when you live out of faith and the values of the word of God as Paul does, faith doesn't ask what if. Faith says even if, even if. Even if things don't go as I plan in the world, I know that God is still in control. Even if my life uh, doesn't go as I want it to be, I know God has a plan for me and is working his best for my glory and for his blessing. Even death is not going to be the end for me because I know I'll be with him in the Lord. Even the present, uh, even though I don't always have things under control or the future, I don't really know what's going to happen. I believe in a God who is in control of the present, who knows my future, and he's doing his thing, which I don't always understand, but for my blessing and for his glory, right? And so when Paul comes here talking to this church in Corinth, as he addresses this particular issue, he's actually asking them to change their view of things, to change their view of their own culture and their own world, of how they think, not just what they believe, but how they're believing. He's asking them to live not out of fear, but live out of faith. And how do you do this? You trust and you remember what you have. You remember what you have in Jesus Christ. John Owen, a famous Puritan, he said this, quote, Our great problem as Christians is that we are so prone to forget our privileges that we underestimate our privileges. And I think what Paul is trying to say is that so much of the Christian life would be so much healthier, so much more shot through with joy, so much less inclined towards sin, if we could just really understand and believe all the things that Paul and God says belongs to us in Jesus Christ by faith. You know, sometimes I wonder if these are things are really true. I wonder and I question and sometimes I complain of why things are happening the way they are, not just in my life, but also in the world. Sometimes I just want to fight or argue or scream or yell. Sometimes I'm worried and I get fearful about the unknown in the future. And I'm asking why, how much longer or why, why does it have to be this way? And I don't know what makes me think God is obliged to give me an answer, but I you know, just kind of think of it this way. This is what I think Paul is picturing. Uh, <clears throat> let me illustrate this way. My dad is getting very old right now. And I think uh, more and more, I, I kind of worry about what's going to happen to him in the future and how we're going to manage this. But uh, every time I see my dad, he always asks if I want to go to the Grand Canyon. You know, if I want to go to the Grand Canyon, for some reason, he loves the Grand Canyon. I don't know if you've been there. I've been there. Or I was there once in my life when I was very little. To be honest, uh, the Grand Canyon isn't probably one of the things on my list that I really want to see anymore. But he really wants to go. But imagine, imagine this, that you're taking a road trip to the Grand Canyon, right, with your family, with your children. And it's a long drive. And you're cooped up in this car. And there's miles and miles of road that you're driving. And you know how it works, right? During that time in that car, in that cramped car, which becomes hot and, you know, uncomfortable after a while, 
the people in your car, their children, even yourself, you begin to bicker, you begin to squabble, you know, you begin to fight and get in on each other's nerves, you know, you're always asking how long, what's it going to be like, why are we doing this, why do we have to go there, uh, and there's just, it just becomes stressful, right, but imagine that as you drive, get closer and closer to your destination, to the Grand Canyon, and you finally tell everyone that you got there, that you've that we've arrived, that we've arrived. And as you come to the, uh, to the scene and you see the Grand Canyon, the landscape and all around you, what happens as your eyes are gazed toward that landscape, eventually everyone else in your car also follows your gaze and you drink it in, you sink, you sink in the view that you finally see. After all that work, you finally get there. And it's as if that the glory of the Grand Canyon and all of it kind of drowns out everything else. Right. When you finally get to that destination after that long drive and you see the beauty of what you came to see, the bickering dies, the squabbling kind of stops, the contentions and the conflicts, they just cease. And everyone's just looking and they're saying, wow. And I think this is what Paul is trying to tell us. He's saying, look at the vast landscape of the blessing that is already yours. And when you begin to drink that in and you see and you remember what you have in Jesus Christ, maybe you'll then begin to forget what you are fighting about, what you are worrying about, what you are fearing about, you know, in the first place. Yes, one day in heaven, we'll see that glory face to face. But even now, by faith in his word, you see things through those things. That instead of fighting and bickering and complaining over sometimes what are very, very, can be very trivial in the big picture of things, instead of worrying or even fearing, you begin to adore and you begin to worship as you remember what you have in Jesus Christ. Okay? That's the first point, that, or first truth that Paul gives us, the perspective that he takes on how he sees things. The second one here is this. Not only remember what you have in Jesus Christ, but remember whose you are. Remember whose you are. Remember who you belong to. And so in verse 23, he not only says, all things are yours, all these five things are yours, but then he says, you are Christ. You are Christ. Not only have all things been given to you in Christ, but you yourself have been given to Christ, and the Christ to whom you've been given is God's Christ. And so Paul is trying to put us into this bigger picture, and he's trying to reframe our thinking so that you are no longer just about you, so that yourself no longer fills every horizon for you, but now you see yourself in a different perspective. Paul says something very important. Here's the most basic fact about you today, if you're a Christian, and that's this. The most basic fact about you is this. You belong to Jesus Christ. You are his. You are not your own. You've been bought at a price. He paid the price for us on a cross, and now you belong to him. You are his, and he belongs to God. And what that means is that, therefore, because of this, over every square inch, if I can use a phrase of the famous Reformed pastor, Abraham Kuyper, written over every square inch of your life, of my life, of the world in which we live, are the claims of this living God who says over it all and over us, he says, mine. You belong to me. These are mine. Now, if you really believe this, if you belong to Jesus, what does this mean? It simply means this. 
it simply means then you don't belong to you. You don't belong to you anymore. You don't get to live your way any way you please anymore. You belong to Christ who shed his blood to make you his. And that perspective then on how we ought to view ourselves and the world that we live in. Um, Famous astronaut Neil Armstrong, as he was reflecting on that moment when he was standing on the moon, looking up at the earth, this is what he said. He said this, quote, it suddenly struck me that the tiny pea, that little pretty blue thing was the earth. I put up my thumb and I shut one eye and my thumb blotted out the planet earth. And then he said this, I did not feel like a giant. I felt very, very small. That's what he said. You ever go to an ant pile and you just kind of, as a kid, you have a kick an ant pile just to kind of see all the ants come out and they're tiny little ants, right? And they're all busy running around and doing their thing. But you know, at the end of the day, when you look at them, they're just ants. Who cares what an ant does in their little ant pile, right? But in the same situation, what Neil Armstrong got was the sensation that he was in the sense of the bigger picture of things like an ant. That as we are encapsulated in our lives and focused in what we're doing here in our world, if you take a zoom out, right, and and realize that you're not the only one there, that you live in a state, and then you zoom out again, you live in a country, there's a lot of things going on. And if you were to just kind of zoom out again, you live in this planet, and, and you realize you get smaller, and then you zoom out from the planet, you're a part of this whole universe that God has created. And in this universe, you then are like an ant, you are a speck, in the whole picture of what God has done. Who cares what happens to a speck of dust, right? Why are we so wrapped up in just me and and my world? And yet the amazing thing is, is that the God of the universe who created all this says he cares for us. He cares for each and every one of us, that he knows every hair on our head. And Paul here is then concluding in chapter 3, and he wants us then to feel this way, this vastness of, of where we live and what God has done for us going around, to respond to this, not with boasting or, or beating our chest or proclaiming our own wisdom, not with just to be immersed in our own worlds, as important as they might be, but to suddenly be humbled, to be aware of how very, very small we really are before a vastly immense God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and yet at the same time amazed by his grace towards us and in his son Jesus Christ, right? And so Paul is then saying, therefore, remember who you belong to, the creator of the universe. Remember what you have, right, as you consider your world. And he's asking you this, have you forgotten your privileges? Have you yourself begun to fill every corner of your world so that you just can't see beyond your own needs, your own demands, or your own preferences? Paul wants to take us into a much wider landscape here in our view of how things are, to show us how the Lord has lavished upon us all things, to see that vast landscape that he gives us. And then when we see this, what happens is that our self-centeredness, our self-concerns, right, our self-issues, even our doubts begin to look much, much smaller. And rather than pride and bickering and squabbling or fighting or complaining or even worrying and fearing, rather than those things, we get a sense of God in our lives. And then comes adoration and praise and wonder to the God 
who has saved us and given us all things, life, death, the present, and the future, the world in Jesus Christ. And because of this, we bow down and we worship. We bow down and we worship. I don't know how you're processing everything, you know, I mean, I think maybe you're just, you know, some of us, we're just going on with life as usual, you know, trying to make the best of it and go out as much as we can. Or, or, or maybe you're, you're frustrated too. Maybe you're worried. Maybe you're in anxiety. Maybe, maybe you're just kind of depressed about what's going on in, in the world, not just with pandemic, but all these issues and, and, and the state of the nation and so on and so forth. Wherever you are, I pray that you are able to see things from the perspective of a God who says these things are true of you. May the Lord help us to remember what we have and whose we are so that we may no longer be self-deceived, as Paul says, nor we may boast in people, as Paul tells us, but we may give him glory and remain faithful to him through thick or thin. That's my prayer for us today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you so much for your